It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Yeah, give it up for Amen. All right, Salt Company, hello, hello, hello. Um, my name is Jared Cole. Who was that feedback from? Who was that? Y'all getting, y'all getting rowdy over here. Hello. I said hello. Y'all said hello back. Like, that, that's, a, that's a big step for Salt Company in here. Give yourselves a round of applause for that, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, my name is Jared. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'd love to meet you. Um, hey, if, if you're new here, this is your first time coming to Salt Company. We are glad you're here. Uh, what you see here in this space is, is really just what you get. Uh, we're a community of college and college-age students, man, that just really want to do community with one another, and we want to learn to love and follow Jesus. And so if you're looking for a place like that, you've found it. Um, and I'd also love to meet you, man. So if, if you're so inclined, please come find me. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. So what we do here is we sing songs just like we have just done, and then we just come in and we jump into the Word. And so I'm going to jump in really quick right now. And what I'm going to do is continue our dwell series that we've been going through. Uh, Rudy, our Salt Company director, he introduced this series a couple weeks ago, this series of dwell. And it's really around this idea of experiencing life with God wherever you are. Right, last week he taught on the Bible the importance of that, right, how we can behold and how we can dwell with God through his scripture. And tonight what I want to do is talk about dwelling and even beholding God, if you will, uh, through prayer. Uh, Aiden just read a portion of text from Acts chapter 10. We're going to be in that chapter for tonight. Uh, I'm going to read through this. It's a bunch of text, the first 33 verses there. Uh, but that's what I'm going to be. I trust you'll meet me there. But before that, it's, it's story time, Okay. I don't know what you think of prayer when you think about prayer, but I know like I don't, I didn't always think of prayer how I think of prayer right now. <laughs> like as I was preparing for this message, I was talking to my wife and we were, we, were, we were talking about prayer and this memory popped up in my mind, right? Those of you who don't know, I used to play basketball, played at University of Iowa, got a chance to play overseas, uh, played pro for a little while. Now, I was thinking about this concept of prayer and coming into this message, like this, this memory popped up. <laughs> and, I, and I remember I would be in the game. I'd be on the court, and the game would be getting tight, right? We'd be down a little bit, seconds on the clock, fouls are happening. We're on the free throw line. And I remember as a grown man playing basketball, just drenched sweat and tears, sitting on the blocks of the free throw line, holding my knees, thinking like, God, if you would just let him... <laughs> Missed the free throw, <laughs> you know, just, just, just let him miss the free throw. If it would just bounce off, we could get the rebound, go the other way and make something happen. God, like, would you just please? Or like literally pleading with God in the middle of a basketball game as if like he really cared <laughs> about, the, about the game of basketball, right? Now, like that wasn't the extent of my prayer life, but yes, that is kind of how I prayed, and I'm like low-key ashamed and embarrassed to admit that. My wife and I talk, were talking about this, and then I like thought of my kids, okay? There's a picture that's going to come up on the screen of my kids really quick. There is four of them, there they are, okay? If you've ever come here on Sundays, you've probably seen these little rugrats, right? You've probably seen them in your kids' classes if you've come here. Um, I have four of them. There's an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And my wife and I, like, one of the things that we love to do, like, our main aim in life is to teach our kids to learn about love and grow um, in their knowledge and understanding of Jesus. 
And because of that, one thing that we want to do is like teach them how to pray. And if you think about kids' prayers, honestly, you maybe heard them in your life, right? Kids' prayers are just like cute at best, <laughs> right? Little substance, substance, not much going on in kids' prayers. Like my kids, we, we tuck them in at bed at night and they'll pray about things like going to the park, right? They'll, they'll pray about things about, oh, I did the monkey bars today, <laughs> you know? They'll pray about things like, I got to play with my Barbies. Uh, but, but one of the things they tend to pray for the most, there's another picture going to come up right now. That's my youngest son. That's Isaiah, okay? He's the cutest thing on the planet. But the thing that he's holding <laughs> is what I want to talk about, okay? Hey, that's Bunny, okay? Bunny, nobody gets prayed for more than Bunny in my house, okay? <laughs> bunny used to be his big sister's Bunny. Now he's his Bunny, and, and Bunny is the most cherished thing I, I probably have in my house. You can't leave Bunny anywhere, okay? If, if Bunny's like downstairs in the basement when it's time for bedtime, you've got to go downstairs and get Bunny. If, if Bunny comes with you in the car to go to the store and for however many times you tell him, hey, Bunny has to stay in the car, Bunny makes it out of the car, we go into the store, and guess what happens to Bunny? He gets left at the store, right? Okay, that, that, that's just what kids do. And, and what happens when Bunny gets left at the store? You get all the way home and you hear, bunny, bunny, bunny. And then you got to go back to the store and get bunny. Like, like nobody is more cherished in my house than bunny. <laughs> and Isaiah, he, he, he's so cute. He goes down for bed and I tell Isaiah, hey, hey, hey say, your, say, say your prayers tonight, buddy. And he prays for, you know, he doesn't say too much if you know him. He's two years old and he has like a very small vocabulary. But he's like, thank you, Jesus. Mommy, daddy, honey. <laughs> you know, so cute. And as they pray these prayers, my girls included, right, the thing that goes on in my mind is that, you know, hey, quit playing around. Right? Get, get, get some real prayers. That's not my response when they pray these things. No, what do I do? I rejoice when they pray these prayers. I rejoice when they pray about playing with their friends. I rejoice when Isaiah prays about Bunny, not because I care about Bunny, but because I care about my kids. And, and then it dawned on me when I was thinking about praying in those basketball games, when I think about playing in, tri praying in, in, in trivial matters, and maybe you have something like that in your life too. God isn't looking at us thinking, hey, come back to me when you have some real prayers to pray. No, he rejoices over that. Not because he cares so much about basketball, not because he cares so much about all these trivial matters, but because he cares so much about me and because he cares so much about you. See, some of you in here, you get this 100%, right? You have this healthy relationship with prayer. Not a, not a perfect relationship with prayer, but a healthy one. You see God as father in your life and your pipeline of communication with him is on point. Right, some of you struggle with this, right? You struggle with whether the thing that you have on your heart is worth even praying to God. Whether it's too big or it's too small of a thing, you're stuck and you don't know if God can really do anything about it. And still yet there's others in here who are just unsure about this idea of prayer altogether. But here's what I want to tell us tonight. If this is you, here's what I want you to know. And this is the main point for tonight. God is a relational creator who wants intimacy with us through prayer. 
So here's what I want to do. Here's a little map for us. I'm going to unpack just a couple things for us. First of all, the why of prayer. And I'm going to bring us to the text, Acts 10, 1 through verses 33. And I'm going to show us two men of prayer that pop up in the text for us. And then lastly, I just want to apply. I want to ask us, what is the way of prayer? As we see these two men of prayer come through the text in this book of Acts, I want to ask, okay, so what do we learn from that? What, is, what are they showing us? What is the way of prayer? And how can we apply that to our lives? Simply walk through some of these ins and outs of prayers and hopefully give us some handles so that we can step into a prayer life with God. And I know that maybe even that may be true for the first time for some of us tonight. So before I jump into the why, I want to give us a working definition of prayer. See, prayer is the lifeline through which we have access to the power and the presence of God in our everyday lives. I love this definition of prayer, right, because we talk about the power and the presence of God. For some of us, those terms may be foreign to us, but we got to understand, like this concept of prayer, what's actually happening here is that we are praying to an ultimate God who has all power, and this ultimate God who has all power desires to have relationship with us. He wants to be present, present in our everyday lives. And when you think about this idea of prayer on this magnitude level, the first why of prayer I want to give us is this, is that we need to be people of prayer because prayer is a privilege. It's this unbelievable reality that we get to talk to God and hear from God as we dwell with him and petition for him to act on our lives and act on the lives of the people around us. See, this should really humble us, that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, he doesn't only want to be this distant God that just sees everything and puts it into motion and, and plays like, like this dude outside of everything. But no, he wants to come close. He wants to be a powerful God, but show you that power. He wants to be power under control. He wants to be power in your presence. This is a privilege. The second thing is this, we should be people of prayer because Jesus models prayer for us. So you look all throughout the Gospels and you see Jesus's life is marked by prayer. We get a few accounts in the Gospels of Jesus going away and being with his father. When he goes away, he's praying to his dad. But we have to know the, the accounts that we see in the text are likely not the only accounts of prayer of Jesus in the text. He lived more than what we get to see just in the short few pages of the Bible that we get to see of him. Right? We have to know that Jesus not only prayed then, but he lived a life marked by prayer. And when Jesus presented the Lord's prayer to his disciples, you guys remember this? It was because they were looking on his life. And they saw that his life was marked by prayer. And the question that welled up in our hearts was like, hey, can you teach us how to do that? Like, can you teach us how to do what you're doing? Can you teach us how to pray? And then that's what he tells them. Our Father who art in heaven, you know the prayer. See, if Jesus, the Son of God, who's fully God and fully man, if he thought it was worth his time to pray to the Father then who are we not to pray? See, prayer should mark our lives. Why? Because it is a privilege and Jesus models it for us. And now I want to show us in the text, there's two men that's going to pop up in here. 
We're in the book of Acts. We're going to see two men whose lives are marked by prayer as well. One named Peter, one named Cornelius, two men from two completely different walks of life who have cashed in on this privilege of prayer and expectation that God would move. I want to show us here in verse one. Look at this. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who was known as the Italian cohort. So first of all, I, I want to stop real quick. Cornelius, first of all, what a name, right? Anybody here know anybody named Cornelius? I love that name. My dad's name is Cornelius. I'm going to tell him y'all laughed at him, okay? But a couple things we learn about Cornelius, right, as we look at this text, is, is I want to show us off the top. He lives in Caesarea. And this is really important. When, when the Bible shows us locations of people, we have to take note, right, because the Bible doesn't waste any information. Caesarea was a place that was a hotbed for a Jew and Gentile conflict. It was a Roman estate, and Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was a Gentile, and he represented this estate. He was a centurion, which means he was over this group of, of people, this Italian cohort, right? Which means he would have been over at least 100 men as a centurion. And he would command these men. He was Roman authority, Roman government. But not only that, look at verse 2. It says this as well. It says that he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. Underline that part. I like that. See, he was a devout man. He was a God-fearer. See, a God-fearer is someone who was essentially a Gentile outside of the family of Jews, but they did everything that looked like they were inside the family of Jews. They, they prayed a lot. They gave. They were devout people. Everything, if you know, Micah 6, 8, everything that that says to love justice or to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Like this is what Cornelius would have embodied. He was generous with his money. He was a man of prayer. Like if you were to roll up on Cornelius at any given moment, you would think that he was a Christian. He, he, he talked the talk and he walked the walk. And there was something about him that convinced him and compelled him by the God that the Jews worshipped. But the only thing he was missing was this belief in Jesus that brought the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as he was a devout man, a man of prayer, I would argue that this might be what he had prayed for the most. See, full confession, when I think of the story in Acts 10, prayer really isn't the first thing that pops up to me. I usually think of Peter and how wild Peter is in this text. I won't be able to unpack all of that. We'll get to some of it. But as I was studying, like Cornelius and his habit of prayer kept coming to mind. And I kept thinking this question kept popping. It was, what would the prayers of a Gentile God-fearer look like? Like, what would the prayers of a Gentile God-fearer look like? Like, yes, he, he likely adopted all the Jewish context of prayer where you would pray three times a day, all that kind of stuff. But, but he probably often prayed more than that. We don't get a glimpse into how Cornelius prayed, what he prayed, but we don't get a glimpse into his prayer closet where he was petitioning on behalf of himself and his family before God. But we can't imagine what his prayers might have been like. Like he might have had some buttoned up prayers, right, like some of ours can be. And thank you, God, for another day. Like, thank you, you're so glorious. Thank you for the breath in my lungs for another chance. Right? Like, like the, his prayers might have sounded like some of that. And some of our prayers sound like that as well. But some of his prayers might have been a little more gritty. 
Have you ever prayed a gritty prayer before? Like I, I, I bet there were times when Cornelius left his prayer closet and he was drenched in sweat. Or maybe he was drenched in tears, pleading with God for the impossible. And I think this is a note for us in this room because some of us think that we have to come to God with only the things that are reasonable in our lives. But there's so many things and examples in this text, including this one, where we can perceive that prayer might not look like how we often envision them to be. Right, prayer isn't always this formal, this buttoned up with a tie like activity, right? Sometimes prayer is coming in with ripped jeans. It's like coming in with, with a torn shirt, muddied up face like Rambo, right? Like you don't get that 90s reference. But like you've just been in battle. Sometimes prayer is like that. And so a question I have for you is, is, is do you have room in your faith for prayers like this? Do you have room in your faith to pray the impossible in your life? See, praying the impossible in your life looks like holding on to the slightest of possibilities that God would do a miraculous work on your behalf. See, things where all measures and all reason go out the window. Like it might not make sense to you. It might not make sense to the people around you. Prayers like that where you desire to see God come through anyway. Shattering any doubt that you might have had all along. See, I think this is the kind of prayer that Cornelius believed in. So keep in mind, Cornelius was a Gentile. And Gentiles to this point where we are in the New Testament, writers would say that they were cast out. They were cast out of the family of God, no hope in the world, couldn't have access to God, couldn't have access to heaven. So we see that just because Cornelius was this God-fearer, he walked the talk and he talked the talk. Just because he did those things doesn't mean that he was saved. See, Cornelius still needed to know Jesus. Cornelius still needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so as he prayed and became a man of prayer, as he's petitioning before God, he was holding on to the slightest bit of hope that at the end of his life, hey, maybe, just maybe, God would be miraculously kind enough to invite him into his family. See, because of that gap that has to be bridged for that to happen in his life and even our lives, you best believe that Cornelius had to pray some gritty prayers. Look at verse 3. As Cornelius was praying, it says that about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who was called Peter. He's lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. I love this response from Cornelius, a bold man of prayer with quick and bold action. But now I want to look at Peter. Look at verse 9. It says this, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter had went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to do what? To pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him that said this, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up once to heaven. See, when we compare Cornelius to Peter and their response through prayer, we see a bold response from Cornelius, but we see this reluctant response from Peter. See, Peter gets this vision of unclean animals on this sheet, and he knows, hey, hey, this is against Jewish custom to eat these kinds of animals. But this vision sent by the Lord tells him, hey, don't call the things that I've made clean unclean. See, Peter had to get this to his mind. And it took him a while to do this. He'll get there here by the end of the text. But I want us to see that we see two men right here, Cornelius and Peter. Both are men who love God and both are men of prayer. But here's the difference. When God sends an angel to Cornelius the Gentile and says, hey, I want you to do something out of the ordinary. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever it takes. But when God sends a vision to Peter, the Jew, that says, hey, I want you to do something out of the ordinary. He's like, oh, hold up. You got to wait a minute. And the thing is this, he doesn't just say that one time. No, he has to have this vision come to him three times. And out of his defense, it wasn't clear what God was trying to communicate, but, he, but we get clarity as we keep reading. Look at verse 17. It says, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Verse 20, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to meet the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, hey, Cornelius a centurion who was unknown to Peter, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guest. You see, the clarity that Peter is needing is, is happening right here. This mysterious, like, knock at the door. <laughs> When this happens, right, he's still trying to make sense of this vision that just happened to him. But this knock kind of snaps things into place for him. And he starts to draw these correlations to what God might have been saying to him through prayer. Which is mainly this, that the sheet wasn't just about the fact that he can eat these unclean animals now. Right, there were so many things that, 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 that the Jews were, were unable to eat. And the sheet was essentially saying, hey, those, those laws, the kosher laws, the food laws, those are gone now. Right, Peter can now enjoy the things that we enjoy of pork chops and bacon <laughs> and pulled pork. Right? Like he can now have these things. But the reality of the sheet wasn't just about that. Right? The, the unclean animals coming down on the sheet wasn't God just trying to make Peter's stomach queasy, but it was trying to make him see something else. That this wasn't about food at all, but this was rather about people. Look at this. The next day he rose and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them. 
and had called together his relatives, his family, and all his friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, hey, stand up. I, too, am just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I think that's wild of Peter to say at this moment. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And so I asked, then why have you sent for me? And Cornelius says, four days ago, about this hour, here's what Aiden read for us. I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who was called Peter. He is lodging at the house of another Simon, a tanner, right by the sea. And so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. And now therefore we are all here in the presence, in the presence, in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I love this resolve here in the text because even when Peter was initially reluctant, he resolved to obey. And I love that because often when we don't understand the things of God, when we don't understand the assignment that God may be having for us, our initial response is to just fold it up, pack it home and do away with it. But no, Peter shows us this, that delayed obedience is even better than no obedience. There's a lot that we can say about this passage, but as we engage it and we think about prayer, the takeaway isn't this, okay? That as we look at this, like, you don't take away, as you engage with this text, if you find time to get away and get in prayer with God, the takeaway isn't that you'll get these really weird visions, these, these, these things that you can't really uh, comprehend, right? That's not the takeaway. If we took that away, we'd be doing something wrong here. But there is something I want us to take away, and it's this. I want us to see how Cornelius and Peter model the way of prayer for us. If the why of prayer is that prayer is a privilege and that Jesus prayed and he's the model that for us, then what is the how or or what is the way of prayer? The first way of prayer I want to give us is this. Pray continuously. Back up in verse 2, it says this, that Cornelius feared God. He was a generous man, and he prayed, what, continuously. See, Cornelius was persistent in prayer. In other words, he shows us that prayer should be the default mode of the Christian. I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 17, to pray without ceasing, rejoice always, and pray without ceasing. And as I say this to you, some of you, like, kind of shiver up. Because you're like, man, how in the world am I supposed to pray without ceasing? That means praying all the time. Listen, I want to kind of put us in the mind of what Paul was saying in this moment. And he's not saying that, hey, you have to be in this perpetual state of being on your knees or face on the ground or eyes always closed. He's not talking so much about your posture, but he's talking about our attitude. This idea of being sensitive to the power and the presence of God in our everyday lives. Which means what? It means that you can be praying without ceasing while you're on your way to class. 
You can be praying without ceasing while you're sitting at your desk at work. You can be praying without ceasing while you're walking to the bus stop. You can be praying without ceasing this holiday season as you're spending time in Thanksgiving and Christmas with your family. You can be praying without ceasing. Because it's not so much the posture in our lives, it's the attitude of prayer. The second thing is this. The way is to pray expectantly. See, Cornelius models this for us. Cornelius prayed, believing that God will actually answer him. Like Cornelius prayed, believing that God would actually do something. He went into prayer. He was a devout man of prayer. And he went to God pleading and and asking God to save, to do something in his life. And I want to make a little caveat in this room real quick because some of us have been like Cornelius before. We've prayed some things in our lives. And if we're honest, hey, we can raise our hand and say some of the things that we prayed for, they have gotten answered. God has given us a yes to that. But you want to know what's also true in prayer that's really hard for us to understand. Sometimes God has a different answer for us. Sometimes God answers yes to the prayers that we pray, but sometimes God also answers no to the prayers that we pray. But even if God answers no to the prayers that we pray, we have to know that the way of prayer is to still pray with expectation that God will move. (laughs) Like, yes, God wants what's for you, but he also wants what's best for you. And sometimes what's best for us is to take the thing that we're praying for the most. We have our hands wrapped around and say, hey, no. Or maybe it's not a no. Maybe it's a not yet. Like I love what the Apostle Paul does in in Romans when he talks about this idea of he's praying before God. There's this thorn in his flesh and he's pleading with God, hey, would you please just take this away from me? And God's response to him is says, hey, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. And yet it doesn't stop Paul from being a man of God. It doesn't stop Paul from communing with Christ. And so it's true with us as we pray, we should pray continuously and we should pray expectantly knowing that God will answer. But also knowing that God knows best. See, Peter also shows us this. Peter prayed and God gave him a link and a connection to this random dude named Cornelius. Like Peter shows us that as he's expecting in prayer, right, he's believing and believing in prayer that if God is at work in him, then he's probably at work in somebody else. And this is a principle for our lives as well. Listen, if, if God is at work in you, if you are going before God and you are praying and petitioning on your own behalf and he's working something in your heart, we can believe and pray with expectation because he's probably working on behalf of someone else or a circumstance as well. See, part of my story playing basketball is I played basketball in, in, in France. And I went over there and I was alone for about a year over there. And I was praying for a church. And if you've ever been to Europe, you know that like Protestant churches, they're, they're few and far in between. And there was one church in this city that I was in that was a Protestant church. I was in La Rochelle, France. And I remember I would just pray. My father-in-law even came to visit one time, and he came to pray with me. We walked around the city, and we were praying that God would show us that there would be a church. We hopped in the car one time. We drove to the west side of the city. We came to this kind of this strip mall-type area. 
we were walking along this way. There was a, a car dealership right there to the left. But to the right there was this building. And we saw the French word for church, église. We go up to the door. We look through the window. Nobody's in. But we see this sheet on the wall. It's there taped right there on the window. And we see this name. There's Jean-Stéphane, <laughs> which is a French name. And then there's Mark Nelson. <laughs> Not a French name. Jean-Stéphane and then Mark Nelson. So the number we write down is Mark Nelson's name, right? We call Mark Nelson. He answers the phone. Bonjour. We say, hello, we don't know French. <laughs> Do you speak English? He says, yes, I speak English in perfect English. We ask him, man, that's great. Hey, we stopped by your church. We see you have a church here. When do you guys meet? Could you even meet up with us maybe one of these days? Uh, I play basketball for the local basketball team. Could you come meet us at the gym? He meets us at the gym. We sit down and we're talking and sharing stories. And lo and behold, I told you guys I played basketball at the University of Iowa. He was from Iowa, hometown not too far from Iowa City. He was a huge Hawkeye fan. He had known of me before I came to La Rochelle, France. He went to Bible school with my sister-in-law's mom. <laughs> he was in France 20 years before I had even stepped foot on French soil. I say this to say that the prayers that I prayed in France those years were being answered by God years in advance. I prayed and I prayed with expectation that God would do something and he linked me just like he linked Peter with this random dude named Cornelius. He linked me with this random dude named Mark. And although it seems random to us, those things in our lives, guess what? They're not random to God. Oh, stories like this that I have, and I bet if you think about it for just a little bit, there's stories like this that you have too. And guess what? These are stories that we will continue to have that we'll be able to look back on and say, wow, only by the hand of God. Would you continue to be a person that prays continuously and expectantly? But you might be here and you might be thinking, hey, I don't really know about much of this prayer thing. <laughs> what, if, what if I don't know what to pray? I go, okay, I'm a little convinced, maybe, okay, I think about this idea of prayer, but hey, what if I don't know what to pray? Here's what I would say to you. Start by praying what you've got. Pray what you've got. Listen, communication with God is not a program. Like we can come to God with our true selves, with our whole selves, we don't have to ask for anything specific. We can come to God with what we have at the moment. You can come to God with your highs. You can come to God with your lows. You can come to God with your joys. Listen, he's not afraid of your words. He's not afraid of the sin that you bear. He's not afraid of the doubts that you have about him. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not even afraid of your unbelief. He says, yo, come to me. You can pray what you've got. There's so many stories in the text of people praying what they have. Small, even short prayers, things that we might even overlook, but we've read maybe in the text. 
Peter, the guy that we're talking about right now, he's on this other side of his life in this book of Acts. But back in the Gospels, when he was walking with Jesus, he was the one that said, hey, Lord, call me out onto the water. I will walk on the water with you. But what do we know that happens to Peter? He begins to sink. And you know what he does when he sinks? He prays what he's got. Lord, save me. In Mark chapter 9, there was this demon-possessed boy, and his father was pleading with Jesus for him to be healed. And he didn't know if he could be healed. And he looks at Jesus, and he's like, or Jesus says, yo, yo, if anything happened to those who believe. And he says, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? He prayed what he had. If you've read through the Psalms before, David wrote most of the Psalms. And as you read through it, it's not so cut and dry. It's not all highs and it's not all lows, but it's David literally pouring his heart out before God saying, hey, this is how I am in the moment. Even Jesus in the garden models for us what it looks like to pray what you've got. You know the story. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he was in the garden praying, told his disciples to look out. And he went before his father and he said, hey, the cross is before me. Is there any other way that you can save the world? Is there any other way? If there's any other way for this to happen, could you please let this cup pass from me? And yet not my will, but your will be done. Listen, the point is the fact that you say something matters way more than what you Say, see, God, he wants to hear from you and he wants to meet you and he wants to meet with you where you're at. I'm about to close, but before I do, I want to just give us four practicals of prayer for us as we leave this space. Molly, you can make your way up. The first practical is this. If we want to be people of prayer, slow down. Slow down in our lives. Look at the things around us. Make prayer a priority. And say, hey, I'm going to mark it on my calendar. I'm going to make the time. I'm going to make this space. Make the space in your house if you have to. But slow down to do the thing. Secondly, make the time. Write it down. Prayer doesn't happen by accident. If you don't have a habit of prayer, of praying continuously, of praying expectantly, it's not going to happen on its own. Make the time to pray. Thirdly, be honest. Some of us in here really need to hear this tonight, that you can begin prayer right now with God, communing with God by praying what you've got. Be honest with God. He's not afraid of what you're going through. He's not afraid of the things you told yourself last night. He's not afraid of the things that you've done in the past. He's not afraid of the lies that you tell yourself. He's not afraid of the things that you don't believe about him. He's not afraid. Would you slow down? Would you make the time? Would you be honest? And lastly, would you give thanks? As you pray, would you honor who it is before you? Would you honor that we get an opportunity to pray, not to just somebody, but somebody who is the creator and the owner of everything that's ever been created? 
Y'all, if prayer is the lifeline through which we have access to the presence and the power of God in our everyday lives, then we have to know that we need access to God at all times. So we ought to pray continuously, expectantly, and pray what we've got. Why? Because God is a relational creator who wants intimacy with us through prayer. I want us to move into a moment of prayer and meditation. If you are where you are, just bow your head and close your eyes right there. If you're new here, so no one's going to come tap you or make you stand up or raise your hand. But I want us to ponder for just one moment. If God is a relational creator who wants intimacy with us through prayer, what would it look like if you desired as much intimacy with Jesus as he desires with you? See, the truth of the gospel is this, that Jesus came to live for you. Jesus came to die for you. Jesus came to rise for you, to conquer your sin, but also to reconnect you back to God. See, the resurrection of Jesus means he provides a way for you to have direct access to the God of the universe through communication with him, through prayer. And Salt Company, my plea tonight is for you to desire that relationship, for you to desire that connection. Would you take that step tonight? Like take this moment right now and, and pray what you've got. We've got the time. We're moving slow. Would you take the moment to be honest? And while you're at it, give thanks for the opportunity to commune with the God who created all things. Would you ask God boldly right now to move in your life? Would you ask God right now to knock down sin? Would you ask God right now to save your family member? Would you ask God right now to move powerfully at conference in January? Would you pray right now? Pray for him to do the impossible. Pray for him to do the unimaginable. Pray for him to do the thing that you've been praying for for years. The thing that you put off in the closet, the thing that you haven't heard a word about, the thing that you thought God had forgotten about, the thing that you maybe have even forgotten about yourself. Would you bring that thing up right now? Would you bring that to God? God wants to commune with you. He wants to hear your prayer. He wants you to pray continuously and expectantly. Would you pray knowing that he wants to move on your behalf? Would you pray? Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Oh, we're grateful for you. We're thankful for your son. We're thankful for what he's done for us. We're thankful for what he's done on our behalf. Man, Cornelius needed a bridge builder, someone to stand in the gap in order for him to be connected with you. And we need that bridge builder. We need that connector as well. Jesus, thank you for connecting us. And would you call us to take advantage? Would you call us to honor the privilege it is that we have to commune with you? Would you call us to honor the ability that we have to come before you, God? Come into your throne room 
unashamed and bring to you what we have. Would you call us to be people of prayer? Would you call us to dwell with you? See ourselves if you see us, children loved by you who can come in and ask you for what we will. God, we love you. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.